Welcome to Hearts and Other Sex Parts, a podcast about redefining yourself and your relationships. This is a safer space for the LGBTQ community, people of color, all genders and gender nonconforming individuals, and all relationship types. These discussions will be strictly body and sex positive. We're your queer hosts. I'm Keely C. Helmick, licensed professional counselor. I'm Jay, your resident queermo and sex ambassador. We'd like to state that our pronouns are she, her. For every guest we have on the podcast, we will introduce their pronouns as well. Yes. And we have an awesome guest with us today, Stace Parlin, who will aid in our discussion topic, Interrupting the Binary. We will be giving a brief historical timeline of the medicalization of trans bodies. After that, we will give our listeners a terminology lesson on the different types of gender identities and gender orientations. Lastly, we will close with tips when talking to a trans person. We want our listeners to come away from this podcast with a basic understanding of how to interact with trans people and gender nonconforming individuals without being an ignorant asshat. And at the end of every podcast, we will close with a poem that goes with the theme of the show. So with that, let's welcome Stace. Welcome. Welcome. Stace, thank you for joining us as an expert in our topic today, Interrupting the Binary. Before we start, would you give your, our listeners a brief introduction about yourself and your profession? Well, thank you for having me. Yes. I'm really happy to be here. I've uh, started a private practice a little over a year ago called Postscript Therapy. Okay. And the focus with my, my client base are working with trans individuals, families, couples. And my work uh, primarily has been around also hormone letter writing, um, surgery referrals, things like that, working with uh, families as their children transition, um, whether that be socially or medically. Okay, thank you. And I do a lot of narrative focus, so uh, that's where my postscript therapy comes from, narrative therapy and talking about how to open up people's stories to having different perspectives and realities that maybe they weren't able to have younger because we have these ideas of who we should be and expectations about who we're supposed to be. So I use a lot of narrative work to kind of open up those stories. That's nice. awesome. And, and I might, what's that? Where are you based out of? I'm over at Brave Space. So that's a, they focus on working with trans folks. So it's a whole uh, building with a few therapists there and acupuncturists that all focus cool. their work with trans folks. Cool. And I myself identify as trans and use they, them pronouns. Okay, cool. So first we'd like to discuss some history behind the medicalization mm-hmm. of trans bodies. Mm-hmm. So, Stacey, you have a breadth of knowledge on this topic. We've talked a lot about this. Can you kind of start from the beginning, and we'll interject with questions as they come up, but we really want our listeners to be able to understand the, that kind of historical timeline. It was really interesting. Yeah, sure. So, like I was saying, I do a lot of hormone letter writing and surgery writing. And with that, um, what a lot of therapists follow are the WPATH standards of care, and that stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Okay. And those standards didn't just come out of, of anywhere. They actually started way back when with a, a man named Harry Benjamin. And he worked over at John Hopkins, and he did a lot of research around trans identities. Okay. And he did a book called The Transsexual Phenomenon, and was based around this person, this trans woman named Christine Jorgensen. And his work primarily focused on actually upholding this binary idea of gender. And when I say binary, I mean this idea that male equals penis and female equals vagina. So basically around biology, we organize uh, gender. Mm -hmm. So he was really interested in supporting trans folks, but in a way that upheld this idea that if you are trans, that means that you want to go to the opposite, and I say in quotes, uh, gender or sex. So his idea for 
for trans folks was that you wanted hormones, you wanted surgery. That's what made you a true transsexual, as he called it. So those standards began with this idea that to be really trans, you wanted to have genital reconstruction surgery, you wanted hormones, and that was the way to be transgender. To basically earn that title? Yeah, to basically be classified as transgender. So what ended up happening is he wrote that book in the 60s, and this was a time when there was a lot of free thinking. There's a lot of the, the Vietnam War was happening. And uh, a lot of men were growing their hair out longer. Gender was more fluid. And there was this reaction uh, that was, people weren't happy with that. So you mean all the parents got pissed off? <laughs> right, right. What the hell is my son doing? So there was a reaction in, in uh, the social and political realms of, we need to like get these people in check. So after okay. the Vietnam War, you have this uh, environment where people were actually, men were back to cutting their hair really like preppy-like, very much uh, being more what we called, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of stiff. And this kind of, yeah, preppiness kind of took back in the 80s. And homosexuality at this time got taken out of the DSM in the 70s. And what got put in... DSM? Oh, that is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So that's what therapists use to diagnose and psychologists use to diagnose people. DSM. Mm -hmm. So... The DSM-3 had um, homosexuality removed. So in the 70, 1973, that's when homosexuality was officially taken out. What you had put in in 79 was gender, gender identity disorder. And with that, the first standards of care, which were the Harry Benjamin standards of care, started oh, in 1980. Okay. I say this is important because what ends up happening is this becomes the standard for which therapists and the medical field is looking at to, to diagnose, quote-unquote, uh, folks as transgender. Okay. So they, so what you're saying is back back then in like the '60s they were using, the DSM three was using this diagnosis, but it was under an umbrella of homosexuality. They didn't have a specific diagnosis. Well, what I'm they saying is, is originally that homosexuality was at the forefront of being pathologized. So yeah. originally, yep. there's this history of sexuality and and gender um, identity actually being very intertwined. Yeah. We tend to separate it out now. But historically, these were movements together, and there wasn't so much of a separation. But what ended up happening was, because people wanted to get their rights and be more assimilated, homosexuality got removed, and trans folks kind of got thrown under the bus. They became the new front for being pathologized. So so that was right around the time, too, in like the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. You see all this uprising. Yeah, the Stonewall riots. Mm -hmm. So there again, there was actually trans women of color that started those riots. But gay men sort of co-opted that um, movement. And so when you see even the recent movie based on Stonewall Riots, you see gay men being at the forefront, when really it was these trans women of color on the front lines of this, of this uh, rebellion. But in order to kind of get sort of, uh, you know, laws and things changed and get, and gay people have more rights, it kind of, they kind of took over and they kind of separated themselves from trans folks. Okay, so the separation in order to get more rights politically but in the end there were a lot of people that left out yeah so what you see happening is um you know briefly when the hiv um crisis happened in the late 80s and 90s you kind of see people come together again trans Mm -hmm. folks gay folks because they're really highly discriminated there's at this point now where they're you know basically it's called the red tape it's people that are saying you're deserving of dying you know you're you're getting hiv for a reason um so there was this kind of bringing back together but what you see happening again is that kind of, in so many ways, not blows over, but the, into the 2000s, HIV becomes less of a concern as, you know, there's 
um, increasing in um, not cures, but with you know folks finding um, what do you call that? You know, sort of not vaccinations, but medications to kind of lower the HIV counts and or you know and help. Uh, blood cell counts and all those medications that are helping, you see that not become so important. But what you have is the Anti-Discrimination um, Dis Act, Employment Discrimination Act happening in the 2000s. And originally trans folks were part of that. But again, to get that passed, they're removed from the bill. So it passes in 2006 without trans folks being part of that. So you see them coming together and then again, and then you see also through the equality uh, marriage movement, uh -huh. which called gay marriage, yeah. again, this sort of Assimilationists, we want to have rights, but at the same expense of folks that don't don't fit into that uh, dynamic, which includes you know people that are exactly. polyamorous, um, exactly. and folks that don't fit into that binary category of how of, of marriage. So a lot of folks, specifically trans people of color and folks that don't benefit from the institution of marriage, are left out. And so again, it's yeah. it's a way to kind of fit in to societal norms. So, so you see that binary being held, upheld again. So, yeah, part of the political thing is that you see it's almost like the binary is helping some people get rights, mm -hmm. but in the end, by mm -hmm. upholding this binary, it's really separating people and leaving a lot of yeah. people out. Well, it normalizes certain bodies, certain acts, and certain, yeah. and then, it, yeah, and it denormalizes or delegitimizes other bodies. So even mm -hmm. as people who identify as homosexual, they are getting more rights in some ways, mm -hmm. but then really it's making it so that these other people a lot of people are actually being left out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Dang. And part of Harry Benjamin's uh, true transsexual wasn't just about um, wanting to have the parts, you know, in line as we see them. Like, so a trans woman having surgery and yeah. having breasts. But it was also this idea that trans women should also be heterosexual. So if you're trans, to be a true oh. transsexual, trans women should also be attracted to members of the opposite sex yeah. or gender uh, being men. So... It wasn't just about upholding this binary in terms of gender and sex, but also this heteronormativity that that uh, Harry Benjamin was also promoting as well. Yeah, so that's how, in in the end, as much as they're trying to mm -hmm. help people, it was really hurting more people than helping. Mm -hmm. And then you have the confusion of people being like, "Oh, you're trans, are but you can't be gay, or are you are you really gay?" And so you have this really big misunderstanding about what being trans is and sexual orientation. Um, is with uh, among the mass, you know, masses. Okay, so can you explain how this history has an impact on the current trans socio-political climate today? Well, what I've seen a lot in my work with trans folks coming in is that they really believe that they need to come in with a certain story, a certain narrative about their identity. So this idea that Harry Benjamin kind of instilled about wanting surgery, hormones, has kind of... Um, it's kind of um, perpetuated sort of this, what we call a transnormative narrative. Transnormative. It's transnormative narrative. This, this idea that when you hear people say, and you, hear, you see it on TV a lot too, that I'm, I was born the wrong body, or I, I want to be the opposite sex, or I hate my genitals, and that's how I knew. I knew since I was four years old, and I wanted my penis gone. Mm -hmm. And I want, you know, basically I'm, I was born the wrong body. That narrative comes from this idea of, of, where the DSM kind of started and, and Harry Benjamin and the standards of care that to really have dysphoria means that you want your body to align in the other, how we see it, the exact opposite way of the other gender. We've kind of kept it as like there's only two ways of being. 
you have a penis or you have a vagina. You have breasts or you don't. And that what's, that's what makes you male and female. So these narratives that fall in line with that thinking are the ones that got passed through. And those are the ones that a lot of folks come in saying and they think they have to say to get the, the care. And to some degree, that's true. It's historically, right. you know, people had to come in and say those things to get the letters, to get surgery. Well, in Stace, I mean, when I'm working with clients right now, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you see this too, mm-hmm. that we also get put on this like how do we help a person Mm -hmm. if we have this one diagnosis Mm -hmm. that a person can get coverage, can get the Mm -hmm. treatment, get what they want, Mm -hmm. but then also be able to do what's helpful. Right. And so that's where those standards of care have come in a little bit and they've, they've they've shifted over time. They still have been problematic in a lot of ways, but what's happened is now there's more room to say, you identify as a gender other than what you were born as. Rather than the opposite, it's changed the language of giving an option of just something different than what you were born as. And the standards of care of saying you have to live as a man or live as the gender you, you have been, you know, identify as for a year, that has been taken away. The problem is, is those standards have been around for a while and insurance companies haven't, haven't caught up. So a lot of folks in many parts of the country still hold on to these older standards and are still promoting those. So it's been a battle. And so part of it is educating, kind of giving room in the, in the space of the clients to say, hey, you don't have to follow this narrative, and then helping them advocate for themselves with insurance companies, with yeah. doctors, and, and, and also with their families, because families are also part of this. They learn these things too. Society learns that this is what makes someone really trans. So you're also working with shifting the narrative with the, with the families of trans people. Yeah, what are, when you think about helping these families, what are one or two things that really stick out for you when you've helped, when you're working with families with people who are trans? Hmm. Well, there's quite a few things, but I mean, across the board, most family members say, you know, how do you know? I need proof. They're always looking uh... for the proof. And the, the thing that I have to sit with with these families is that they'll never, they'll never get the proof they're looking for. They'll never fully understand the experience that their child or their partner or you know their cousin or whoever are experiencing so part of it is working with them not in the unknown and accepting that they may never understand but do they have to understand to accept so they have to understand to support so that's a big piece of it and then working with their grieving process because this is a grieving process this is a sense of loss because society does create these expectations i mean we do with with uh heterosexuality as well we assume that if we have a we see a vagina we're going to have a daughter, and this daughter is going to want to marry a man someday and have babies. And so when that sense of, of that world, of that maybe not happening, of something changing, it is a loss, a loss to all these future ideas and expectations. But there's also gain there, but it's hard to see the gain before experiencing that loss and shifting those expectations. That's a really good way to put it. So with anything else regarding the, the socio-political climate, I think we've kind of... I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we there's so, so much, much to touch time. on. There's but so much I time. Mean, there's you, only so much time. I but, mean, you see a lot of things um, from bathroom bills um, to people trying to revoke uh, anti-discrimination ordinances around the country. And these are things that are all impacting uh, people's health, so trans people's health. I mean, as a therapist, I've seen a rise in, in anxiety, depression, PTSD, oh right? my gosh, all yes. these things that are happening. And I have a rush of clients now coming in who want assessments for for letter writing and for hormones and things because they're so worried that their rights are going to be taken away. They're not going to have access to changing their gender markers and to, you know, passports and licenses and surgeries that they need. So they're actually going through quick, you know, trying to get those letters uh, faster with not knowing what's going to happen with the new administration. 
So there's a lot going on right now. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So with that, let's move into, um, I know we've potentially used some language here that Mm -hmm. our listeners may not know. So Mm -hmm. maybe just, uh, and maybe we should have started this, but some of the components of gender and and terminology just to help our listeners get a better understanding of gender identity. And you use the word dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And I think um, maybe you could give kind of a, a definition of that word or what dysphoria is, what it feels like, so that our listeners can understand what that experience is like. Well, I'll do the best I can. The tough part with, with term terminology is there really isn't one definition, yeah. which makes it really difficult to sum up all these experiences yeah. uh, into a definition. So when I say, when I do these definitions, take them with a grain of salt and to know that there's much more room for discussion to uh, interpret these things in different ways. But the way that I um, understand dysphoria is we tend, well, at least in Western European and society, we tend to dis, we tend to separate body and mind. So when looking at dysphoria, we talk about someone's mind and how they view themselves, you know, internally is not matching up to some degree with what they're experiencing externally and from other people. So with that said, dysphoria can look like a social dysphoria, which would be when you get misgendered. And you may be walk out of your house and feel okay with your body to a certain degree. But let's say you identify as a, a, a man and someone says, oh, excuse me, ma'am, that can kick up a lot of distress in that you're not being seen for who you believe yourself to be. So that's a, that's a social dysphoria. That is a, um, a disconnect between your experience and what other, other people's experiences of you. That can cause distress. And then you have um, psychological dysphoria, and that's this idea that who you are in your head and who you believe yourself to be isn't in line to some degree with who your outside is. Okay. And that's this idea that, and that's again that separation of body and mind, which is different if you look uh, at other cultures where they don't they don't separate those things. But for all intents and purposes, this is how we understand dysphoria in the DSM and in the standards of care that we use. And then the third, which is the most prominent, gets the most um, attention, is body dysphoria, and that's where there's some part of your body that you that causes you distress you're completely disconnected with that you that you don't see as part of your identity so oftentimes for trans folks it can be um your chest or it can be your genitals but it also can be your voice it could be how your hair grows it could be um your height you know depending Mm -hmm. on your identity so there's so many different parts of your body it can be i mean really anything um yeah so What about sex versus gender, like the Mm -hmm. trans-feminist theory? So we tend to think of sex as these biological characteristics. Um, You know, our gonads, our secondary uh, sex characteristics, our genitalia, chromosomes, hormones, all these things make up sex. Gender, you know, has been seen as the cultural meanings or the roles that we assign to these different bodies. So male-female being sex and man-woman being gender. Now, in trans-feminist thinking... And in a lot of, um, just in general, when, look, when working with trans folks, what ends up happening is a lot of trans folks get told, okay, maybe you're a trans woman, but biologically you're a man. And this is really harmful thinking. So in trans feminist thinking and in trying to break out of this binary idea of bodies and, and gender, um, the view that I use and a lot of folks use is that your sex is your gender and your gender is your sex. So if you're a trans woman, you biologically are female. Because you are a woman, you are female. So you maybe biologically have a penis, but that can be your female part. That can still be part of your okay. female anatomy. But that's where we have to break away from this binary thinking of associating 
female with vagina and penis with and like specific labels Mm -hmm. like to have that this is a label of this is what this is and Mm -hmm. this is what it's connected to right and that's what we call cisnormative thinking right we create this world around cisnormativity that is to say that there's this binary way of being and that if you like what I was saying, you have a vagina, you're female. If you have a penis, you're male. And that is cisnormative. The world organizes around that. So Literally. like women, right, get, can only get pregnant. Well, yeah. once we start thinking that men can get pregnant or women only have periods, but men can have periods too. Lindsay, so, do you not feel like Stace is like blowing some people's mind right now? <laughs> yes. Like they're like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. but I was told this. Yeah, what does this even this mean? <laughs> and I get that all the time. There's actually a great... Um, a great cartoon it's this uh, I suppose, I'm, I'm assuming a trans girl and she's scratching her head and she's like what do you mean I have a boy's penis I'm a girl my penis is female and it's like this really cool cartoon I use those a lot to kind of break down these ideas around cisnormativity which actually translate to cis sexism it's a mouthful oh, so it's kind wow. of heterosexism's partner so cis sexism then is so cisnormativity organizes the world around uh this binary idea of what male and female is. Yeah. Cis sexism then, then says that people that are cisnormative are, are better than or are yeah. more normal or are more legitimate or more real. So that's why you have real men, right? And you talk about biological men and real men or biological women and real women and then trans women and, tra- you know, and trans men. So that's what we're ingrained with to say is that trans women and men are less than, are not really men and women. Because so they're not, the, yeah. Yeah, exact like labels, these mm-hmm. boxes, again, taking the binary mm-hmm. out of it and looking at the full expansion of what is mm-hmm. possible, what is, how right. people are recreating the stories. Exactly. And if you think about it, this all comes really basing on looking at someone's genitalia at birth or in a, you know, um, ultrasound and deciding that this is who they are. Yeah. So if we left room for That's people just up. to be, yeah, born and to decide their own destinies and who they are instead of labeling it based on, on, on genitalia, which don't even account for hormones and chromosomes and all these other things that, you know, is another category, which is intersex people get totally erased as well. And yeah. so can you explain that intersex or I think, uh, DSD? So yeah. So intersex folks, um, basically there's, there's, there's quite a few different, intersex uh, uh, diagnoses. There's different forms of intersex. And only a couple are actually can be harmful to someone's health. For the majority, they're actually just healthy differentiation. But historically, when we have seen someone not fit in, whether it's, usually it's their genitalia, right? Having both gonads and a uterus or, you know, some, some you know, uh, a micro penis or whatnot. We tend to freak out mm-hmm. and be like, that's not normal and we got to make we got to make them fit into one category or not, or, or not. And usually, if it's a micro penis, they'll actually turn um, the genitalia into a vagina because it's it goes to like who would want to have a micro penis, right? What man would would want to suffer through so this again, small penis? So this goes back to what? Well, yeah, like creating. I mean, you're just talking about what we just said, which is like somebody choosing. Mm-hmm. But that's like a more like right there in the moment. This little baby, mm-hmm. someone else is choosing. Yeah, removing full agency from this from this child. Yeah, they have no mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's a term for that. So we use AFAB and DFAB, assigned female at birth and designate or. Um, Assigned male at birth. Yeah. Or designated female AFAB, at birth. AMAB. Yeah. AFAB, AMAB, DFAB, DMAB. So that's used a lot by trans folks if they do want to discuss their histories um, of how they were assigned and how that designation was incorrect. Yeah. For intersex folks, if you know, should they find out later in life that 
you know, someone did ha- operate, or a lot of times they're not even told. You know, they're left just not even not um, confused about why they're feeling, you know, disconnected or having some kind of memory of something, and they're kind of left to kind of figure that out. But should they, you know, be told that there's a term called coercively assigned female and coercively assigned male. Yeah. And this is this idea that they were, they were, um, you know, had surgery, were coerced into this without any agency and, and to made to fit into this binary. Uh, the so, binary and it really comes down to upholding a patriarchal system where, um, you uphold masculinity and femininity gets devalued. Again, if there's a micro penis, a lot of times it gets converted into vagina. And these binary systems were a way to group bodies. And what we've done with gender is say that masculinity is, is in a sense better than or more dominant than femininity. And you see that play out. And that's what happens with a lot of trans feminine folks is that they are seen as betrayal against masculinity. Why would you choose to be, you know, a woman or be feminine. How could you, it's kind of like a slap in the face to patriarchy and to masculinity. So they end up being the targets of violence a lot and being told they're never going to be real women and that they're perverted, right, for wanting to, to dress this way. And so there's a lot of violence towards trans women uh, for that specific, and trans feminine folks and non-binary feminine folks for that reason. Yeah. Because they kind of break apart this system and uh, challenge it challenging the system (laughs) yeah so we've talked about cis transgender we also uh non-binary or gender (laughs) molly um my dog in the background (laughs) she's our companion today she's our mascot she's our mascot molly's our mascot um well and actually dogs are a great example of 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 breaking up or looking at gender. You ever go to a dog park and people say, oh, what a good boy, Mo- you know, well, Molly, good boy. And they're like, actually, my dog's a girl. And they'll go, oh my God, I'm so, so sorry. I'm sorry, But yeah. you correct, you, you say your gender. It's a duck. And you say your gender pronouns and they go, are you what? sure about yeah. that or what? And it's all kinds of uncomfortable. But people are very quick to apologize for messing up your dog's gender. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So can we talk about the being non-binary mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, different use of pronouns? Um, breaking the gender binary mm-hmm. system. I think that the non-binary, people are understanding trans. I think the newer thing is the non-binary. I feel like the use of they as a singular is really starting, it really throws people off. Yeah, so some folks that are non-binary may identify under the trans umbrella, or some folks may not identify with that label and consider non-binary separate from that. But in general, again, there's not a one a one definition for this, mm-hmm. but in general, non-binary people, myself included, either kind of don't identify as any of those genders or both or kind of a fluid sense of like going back and forth or identify maybe as a man and woman, but not how society understands man and woman. So their own definition of what that looks like. So to do that, sometimes they'll separate um, their, their pronouns out and go by they, them. Some folks will still use she, her or he, him. There's some mm-hmm. intersections of race um, in there, too, that a lot of people of color have spoken to this experience of not feeling like they were entitled to choose their gender, too, or have a gender um, in the way that white men and women were allowed. So kind of, again, especially for um, black women who were kind of not allowed to have access to femininity in the same way that white women were, mm-hmm. they may feel like using she, her is actually a reclamation or a way to... to um, to be non-binary, but also claim their their she herness. So, um, it really depends on. I don't speak for, but it really depends on a lot of things. So, non-binary can look like using they/them pronouns, zim. Um, there's different 
some people just like use their name or like they like I'm a unicorn or I'm a sparkle boy. There's just different ways of defining and kind of being outside of this kind of um, idea of of gender uh, gender binary that really was um, kind of created through a white a white lens. Right. The last main uh, topic I think we wanted to cover for today was the idea of, well, the reality of trans misogyny. Mm -hmm. And um, this is probably a new term for some of our listeners. Mm -hmm. Could you kind of explain what trans misogyny is in that um, experience? Yeah, so as we were kind of talking before about intersectionality, and I was talking about sort of masculinity being upheld as sort of better and femininity being less than, and cis-normative ways of thinking being kind of held up and folks that are transgender is being seen less real. Trans misogyny is sort of that intersections then of, of those two things of trans people being seen as less authentic and less real. And so that'd be the trans part, the transphobia part. And then misogyny is this idea that feminine being a feminine is not as valued. So when those two, two things intersect, you have this overlaying um, oppression or sort of discrimination that happens and specifically in the direction or towards folks that are trans feminine or non-binary and feminine expressing. So it's not something that trans men necessarily experience. It's more geared towards uh, trans women and trans feminine folks. And if you're a person of color, there's an added layer, again, of racism that, and that's why you've seen just this year, um, at least seven uh, trans people been, have been killed and oh they've all gosh. been trans women, uh, yeah. trans feminine folks of color. So this isn't a coincidence. It's not because... No. These folks are deserving or they're doing something, you know, this is these, these intersections of how these things play out. And that looks like discrimination in employment, in jobs, in housing, in healthcare, um, police profiling, all these things uh, predominantly do target uh, trans women of color. And they're of all LGBTQ folks, trans women of color are the most discriminated against and have the highest degrees of, of mental health because of that too, um, concerns. So... Um, yeah. So awful. That's a good overview. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot more trans misogyny, but this also um, is part of why trans women get excluded from women's spaces. They're seen as not having the woman, true woman's experience, right? For not having a vagina, mm-hmm. for not menstruating, for not being able to get pregnant. These things are used as saying you're not really a real woman. And there's there's a there's a lot of uh, women out there, cisgender women, that really believe this and that they feel that they're more oh, oppressed yeah. than trans women, which is actually it's quite the opposite. Trans women. Are, are significantly uh, more discriminated against than, than cisgender women. Well, and then it just leaves out the the idea or the reality that there's also cis women mm-hmm. that do not menstruate. There's cis women that don't have children either because they can't, they can't mm-hmm. or because they choose not to. So all of these things that we're talking about not only harm people who are trans, that people that are non-binary, it really actually harms everybody. Exactly, exactly. So these ideas around cis sexism, cis normativity, really hurt everybody. It can, it really is rigid and confines people to being based around their actions and who they are, being based around their genitals and their biology. When really, uh, biology is just as such is just as much a construct as as gender. Not to say these things don't have real differences, but the meaning we make out of these differences, the meaning we make out of someone having testosterone versus estrogen, is completely constructed. Well, and that's why I use mostly narrative therapy yeah. and, and counseling because I find it really works to kind of look at these ways in which societal norms have harmed people and not just around gender. I'll look at expectations around when you're aging, right? Or in your families, what job you're supposed to have and how you're supposed to act and expectations in religion and your bodies, right? People that are fat, people that are skinny, 
like what all these things they're told that you're supposed to look like and be and act like how do these norms that no one really fits into keep us fighting amongst each other right and keep us in this place of of just uh, trying to like prove that we can we can just be the most normal right who decide and who decides what this normal is right and then by everyone fighting against each other then really there's certain people in power there's mm-hmm. this there's this power dynamic that keeps a certain few people in power and everyone else fighting against each yeah. other and no one's looking up and that's where you have internalized transphobia internalized misogyny yeah. you have people among uh, communities fighting with each other to, to prove that they actually are the are fitting in or are the most normal or you know, and so it happens, you know, in all sorts of ways. So that's why we need some tips in okay. the meantime. So uh, this last area we want to go through is is to prevent the fighting, create open spaces, create safer spaces for people that are trans or, uh, or gender nonconforming. So we want to go through, um, before we finish up with Stace here, uh, some tips when talking to a trans or non-binary person. Uh, the first tip that we... Uh, have here for you is that transgender is an adjective not a noun or a verb so maybe you could explain that a little further yeah so some folks add an ed onto transgender and say transgendered or cisgendered and i just like to make light of it and i just say you know there wasn't a wizard that came in and and transgendered anybody or cisgendered anybody. <laughs> it's not an action done you may get surgeries you may you may take hormones but that, that doesn't make you transgender that doesn't that didn't turn you transgendered you didn't become transgendered when you had a surgery mm-hmm. so the the transgender is really a qualifier okay. uh, it's an adjective you just described how your gender is who you know who you are so you can be mm-hmm. cisgender or you can be transgender but you, you don't get transgendered and you aren't a you aren't a transgender or a cisgender Similarly, with, with sexuality, we're not a gay, you know. Gay is actually an, actually an adjective, too, to describe your type of sexual orientation. So same thing. Same thing. Lesbian women, gay men. We, we sometimes say lesbians and noun kind of in that way, and we can do it. But if you really think about it, like, it's, it's, it's actually an adjective. So you don't say a gay, but you'll say a lesbian. It's really interesting how that works out. Uh, you ever okay. notice that? But they're all adjectives. Yeah, I think so. it's so normalized in how we talk mm-hmm. now that no, we didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. And but it can this be dehumanizing. We're notice because it's a bit more. When you say important. you're a transgender, it can feel dehumanizing. When oh, you're God, when yeah. you're yeah when you're transgendered, it feels like this whole idea again that something was done to you rather okay. than just being. So, tip two is remembering all people are real mm-hmm. and biological. Yeah, so that goes back to what I was saying, this idea that there's cis men and they're more real, or cis women are more real, and then there's trans women who are less. So this idea, we all have biology, and biology can mean different things to different people, and it's all valid, and it's all real. And having a penis doesn't make you more of a man than not having a penis. Yeah. It's getting away from saying, oh, are they a real man? Are they are they mm-hmm. a real woman? Are they, and maybe you could go to male-bodied, female-bodied. Why don't we like that? So again, that puts this idea that there's a way of being male-bodied and female-bodied. When people use female body to say that they're describing someone with a vagina and breasts, they're again defining what makes a female body. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone that doesn't have breasts, who doesn't have a vagina, is equally female body. So if we can get away from this idea of defining femaleness or maleness based upon these uh, preconceived notions of biology and leave room to have all different kinds of combinations of, of bodies that can be female male or you know not none of the above so some people are non-binary may say i have a non-binary body you know it may not be Mm. female or male 
So yeah. you're really you're leaving that out. And I mean, really asking someone's gender is just asking what their genitalia was. And what's mm-hmm. a better way, if you really are feeling the need to know, mm-hmm. a better way to ask is saying AMAB or AFAB. Well, that's just it. Even in the sense asking someone's AFAB or AMAB, you're still really wanting to know what they're that's born all it with. Is. And so and we get this weird. focus on genitalia and you go back to Harry Benjamin. Who cares? But this didn't come out of nowhere. We have really organized ourselves around this idea. Yeah. And we base sexual orientation of who we're attracted to based on genitalia too. So it's really a binary idea that if you're gay, you must be, if you're a gay man, you must love to like suck dick, right? right. Or if you're, if you're a lesbian, you better like to munch that carpet. But what about <laughs> lesbians that have penises, right? Or yeah. men that don't. And so we've really organized even sexuality based around um, biology and, and yeah. our ideas around what makes gender. Well, so. and so limiting and so assumptive. Like there, mm-hmm. there's the assumptions of, Which again, the label. Which leads three. Mm-hmm. Topic three, Keely, you just hit it. Don't assume someone's pronoun. Mm-hmm. Stace, what's the best way to ask someone's pronoun? So this is tricky because I think what often happens is we tend to think we know what someone looks like when they're trans, right? There's this idea that you can tell when someone's trans. And if you don't, then you don't ask their pronouns. We only tend to focus on people we think don't fit in. And we're like, oh, I want to ask your pronouns. So if you're not asking everybody their pronouns, it's also going to be offensive to go to that one person you think is trans to ask their pronouns. So it's best, My what I like to do is I just don't assume anyone's pronouns. I do my best to use their name, and I will use they, them, but I will also say that using they, them, you run the risk of, of not affirming someone's womanhood or manhood too. So it's best to be as open as you can to being corrected and to go in with the assumption that you don't know anyone's gender, whether you think they're cisgender or not. Yeah, And, and, that, and it's a difficult thing to learn. This is a whole... This is a whole a framework process. we're unlearning, and that's why this thing is called, you know, called interrupting the binary because you're really trying to interrupt all and, and reshape all this thinking that we have had for forever. Unlearning and relearning. Unlearning and relearning. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yep. And and with that, I think those are great three tips that we have. General terms to avoid. Mm-hmm. I will do one more tip. Is that okay? Yeah. This is a big thing that I work with with in counseling. Is really believing someone when they tell you who they are. I think questioning, you know, there's, there's, you may feel it's harmless, but when you are put someone who's trans on this position to have to defend or justify, mm-hmm. that becomes a problem. So I think giving room for people to have their stories and for you to believe them. I think that's the a big thing you can do for trans folks. Mm. That's so, yeah. and then, yeah. And general terms to avoid. Transvestite, tranny, no one says that shit anymore. People don't say that shit. People do. Uh, people do. People do. And <laughs> people do. Yeah, no. People do. People should not. They should not, yes. <laughs> um, like, well, people don't. <laughs> um, hermaphrodite. Mm-hmm. Are they a he, she, it? These are all words that we need to remove from our vocabulary. They're just yes. not. And I will say they're that not progressive. They're they not. can be a self-identifying term. So if someone self-identifies, it's one thing. But it doesn't give you then permission to then use these words. It, it's done mm-hmm. in relation to having community that, you know, especially among... Um, the T word has been used, you know, um, in, in drag scenes. And there's some argument, do drag queens have the right, you know, is it reserved for people that identify as trans women? So there is, there is that conversation happening in those communities and that's for them to have. But I think it's not terms as outsiders, as a trans masculine person, would I ever use the T word? Because again, that word harms trans feminine folks. That's been used to 
degrade trans feminine folks as they're being murdered, as they're being and when killed. when you say the T word, you're going to say it now, but... Yeah, so the T word, uh, tranny. I just say the T word because I don't feel like I, I have ownership over that word. Yeah. Okay. But that is a, a word, just like queer, you know, back in the day, was really harmful. A lot of people in older generations do not like the word queer still. It has a lot of trauma associated, but it has been reclaimed. So there are certain spaces where that word is reclaimed and is used in a way that is, you know, empowering. But you have to mind that context and know your place and kind of stay in your lane, so to speak. Stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. Good. So I think that um, these tips, this is great. Uh, this was this was our last subtopic for today. So Stace, thank you for joining us in this yes, discussion. Thank you so really much. Good. Um, I think our listeners have a lot to take away from today. Marinate on that for a minute. We want you all to know that we are planning to do future podcast topics on interrupting the binary that will get deeper into the experiences of non-binary and trans individuals. Some topics that we have in mind right now are discussing the current socio-political climate, the impacts of cis normativity and heterosexism on transgender identity formation, how we advocate for trans individuals and trans youth, healthcare and counseling options for trans individuals, families and partners of individuals in transition, and more. Yeah, so the goal being, how do we shift this framework from more than just a binary? How do we open that language and create spaces, create more room for people to self-identify in different ways and be legitimized institutionally and socially? Yes, we are looking forward to continual collaboration with Stace and other members of our queer community to educate and inform our listeners on such topics. Yeah, so as mentioned, we love poetry. So with that, we are going to be closing with a poem today. Uh, the poem that we chose was Identity Blues by Alok from Dark Matter, who's a non-binary trans feminine person of color. Uh, this person's a writer, poet, activist. Um, and with that, Keely, would you please read Identity Blues? Today, I realized how similar diaspora and dysphoria looked on a page. We have always been made to feel foreign in our own bodies a guest overstaying welcome, a resident of a place we are, constantly reminded we don't belong to. Isn't diaspora its own form of dysphoria? Asking for gender is another way of asking, where did you come from? Sometimes when I answer, water comes out. That was beautiful. A very thoughtful poem. Thank you, Keely. So that's a wrap for today. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, Hearts and Other Sex Parts. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud. We're on Instagram and Facebook as Hearts and Other Sex Parts. Feel free to write us feedback or questions. We have an email now. It's not shockingly, Hearts and Other Sex Parts <laughs> at gmail.com. Um, or you can direct message our Instagram or Facebook pages. Uh, if you want to contact Stace, they've given us clearance to share their email, which is Stace, S T A C E at postscripttherapy.com. Again, that's Stace at postscripttherapy.com. Stace is also on uh, Psychology Today and Portland Therapy Center. Also, if you want to support our podcast and educational resources, go to gofundme.com and find our Hearts and Other Sex Parts donation page, which is also linked in our Facebook bio. We ask our listeners to donate $1 a month if you can. And with that, thanks thanks for for listening. (laughs) Your hosts encourage you to stay open and remember, self-love is the best love. love.